Today's title would be the circumcision to baptism. Not and baptism, but to baptism. And today will be the fourth and the final Sunday for us to deal with the topic of infant baptism. This is a complex topic. My strategy for past four weeks has been to show you that the baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are one of the covenant signs that God has been using from the earliest times of human history to put our discussion in a bigger context, context of God dealing with His people through covenants. Because isolated, Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper seems like an invention of new Christian ritual, if you just read the New Testament. Isolated, infant baptism seems like a relic of Catholicism or its sacramentalism. But when you read from the Old Testament, you will discover that baptism is an extension of that pattern of God's dealing with His people, making promises, covenants, and giving them some visible signs to help them in their faith. And in that pattern, we should see uh, infant baptism. The purpose of the covenant sign, as we have been uh, looking at, was to attest and ratify the benevolence of the Lord toward us. That's Calvin's definition. Why does God give signs? To talk about Him. To talk about His promises. Not first and foremost to prove my faith to God. That slight difference in perspective is very, very important as we've been saying. I think this is important because infant baptism issue, maybe you are a single person asking, wondering, why do I have to listen to infant baptism issue? This is a way to live your Christian life. It's not simply about whether to baptize infants or not. But when you start studying this topic, the implications of this is massive. Everywhere you turn in your Christian life, this will affect your Christian life. So if you're a single person, I will ask you to simply uh, listen and try to understand. Let me give you just quick review of what we have been studying. First Sunday, the title was The Signs of the Covenants. And we turn to Noah's covenant. God made covenant with Noah because that's where you will see the term, the covenant, first appears in Genesis 6 and 9. What was interesting about that covenant was God makes the covenant with him and his sons and family, descendants. And God sets up a visible sign, the bow, and we understand that to be rainbow. 
And the warning was to remind himself of his own promises. That's that's what God said. Whenever I see that, I will remember my promises to you. And obviously, the second part will be Noah, by looking at the sign, he will be reminded of God's promise and his faithfulness that will help his own faith. The second Sunday, we looked at infant circumcision. The next major covenant was the covenant with Abraham. Abrahamic covenant is important because what was general with Noah and Noah's covenant becomes laser-focused in Abraham. In what way? God gave us the promise of the gospel in Genesis 3 after the fall. And that seed of woman promise will now find home in Abraham's line. What was interesting about that in Abrahamic covenant was that covenant sign was circumcision and that covenant sign included eight-day-old infants, male infants, and all of the male that were in the household even including foreign-born or bought servants. And we have noticed what? At that time, Abraham possessed saving faith in Genesis 15. And God gave him the sign more than 13 years later in Genesis 17, after possessing his saving faith. But in dealing with covenant infants, The people who are born into that household, even including the servants, God gave them the covenant signs to emphasize God's grace. And we have said through the words of Brian Chappell, such covenantal growth of a child is in fact a normal Christian life that God intends for his people. All future generations of Israelites will be infant circumcised. Converts coming from different nations, they had to profess. They had to be then given the circumcision. But the covenant children were given the signs. God's wisdom says the sign first to the babies, then the faith. That simply is the pattern that God has established in that infant circumcision. And the third Sunday, we looked at the oikos formula. When you look at the book of Acts, when a person is converted and that person is baptized, and when he or she had their family together, present, all those places emphasized that the household, the entire household, was baptized over and over again. That could be a strange thing if you are just looking at the New Testament. But if you've been tracing the covenant dealing with God, with His own people, there is nothing strange about that phenomenon. So burden of proof, what does that mean, household baptism? It doesn't say there are infants. But for us, looking at from the Old Testament perspective, 
There is nothing new or strange about household baptism if that is a, in a continuation from infant circumcision and so on. Now today, the fourth Sunday, this is what I want to say. So I wrote it down and I'm going to read it. My thesis. I would like to connect the sign of circumcision to the sign of baptism in order to argue that if the thing signified in the circumcision is essentially the same as that of baptism, by parity of reasoning, the extent of shadowy covenant which included infants in the circumcision could not only be applied to the infants in the New Testament, but by the nature of the case of the New Testament's grace being better, greater, and clearer in its scope and content, the infants who are born into a believing parent's household must be granted the sign of the new covenant thereby setting them apart from the pagan world, initiate and incorporate them into the covenant community, reminding them and pointing them to the cross, so that by the grace of God, in time, like Abraham, like Isaac, they may possess and profess saving faith in Jesus Christ, who is not merely able to save, but willing to save, especially our covenant children. I know it's a long one, but that is the path that I've chosen to take in explaining infant baptism. We have relied upon Sinclair Ferguson's distinction. He says, For Baptists, it is a sign of what the believer has done in response to Christ. It symbolizes believer's faith. So with that definition, baby who cannot talk or speak or understand, to them cannot be given a sign. Because that sign symbolizes person's faith. But for us, for Presbyterians, Baptism is first a sign of what Christ has done and of all that is in him to be received in faith was the distinction that we've been emphasizing over and over again. Now, I know what the Baptist friends will say as we look at Colossians chapter 2. Just like the oikos formula, they will say there are no explicit mentioning of infants being baptized, though household, each household is being baptized. Like that, they will say, when you look at this passage, you may, I may draw the connection between circumcision and baptism, but they will say it does not prove the case that this passage is about infant baptism. That is the burden 
that is placed upon us. Because there is no explicit command in the New Testament that tells us to baptize our infants. Only thing that we could say is that know that there is a pattern from the old to new and we are going to argue in indirect way. So with that, with that, before we read Colossians 2, I just want you to know the context. Why is he talking about that? Because that church in Colossae, many people are being led astray. They are following all kinds of teachings, false philosophies. And what does Paul do? Whenever you read the New Testament, uh, Paul's letters, what does he do when you are to give them an advice? He always, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he will always talk about the basics. Your identity in Christ. Who you are in Christ matters and you stay stable in your faith. That's what he would say over and over again. By showing preeminence of Christ. And what he has done for you and who you are in Christ and that is not an exciting thing for many Christians. They want, they want to see something exciting, something that will help you live your Christian life. But at the end of the day, those things will fall away. Those excitement, exciting feelings will disappear. And you will have to, by the help of the Spirit and through the Word, remind yourself who you are in Christ. That's what he's doing. And in that context, he will talk about our new life in Christ. And he will use the language of circumcision and baptism to portray our being in Christ. So let's look at it in Colossians 2, 1 and following. But toward the end, there are a few sentences that I made it into the bold. And that's where we are going to Spend some time. But let me read from chapter 2, verse 1, to give us better context. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. In whom, what? In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What is he saying? So don't go away from Christ. Don't go astray from Christ. That's what he's saying. Because in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will deluge you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him, 
and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And he's going to argue now the preeminence of Christ, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So probably saying don't worship angels or, or the man or something like that. Verse 10. And in him you have been made complete. It's done. You have been made complete. And he is the head of all rule and authority. Don't try to go after something, some philosophy to be made complete because you are already, you have been made complete in Christ. Verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking about spiritual circumcision. In the removal of the body of the flesh. Because that's what circumcision signified. By cutting that piece of flesh, it signified the rolling away of sinful nature, body, sinful lifestyles. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It could mean Christ's own circumcision when he was a baby. But it's better to see it is circumcision by Christ. Probably referring to his own death. Verse 12. Now, after talking about the spiritual circumcision that you already went through, right? Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and... Ephesians 2, 1 will say, when you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? The parallel passage. So when you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. If you would look at verse 10 through 13 and not move away, just, just a couple of minutes here. What do you see in those verses 10, 11, 12, 13? I see the repetition of in him. That means in Christ. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 12 twice. So in him basically pointing to Christ. And look at verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11 is basically explaining the same thing. Verse 10 says, In him, that is in Christ, you have been made complete. Verse 11 explaining that verse 10 again in the different language saying, In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That basically describes to us salvation in Christ. But he is the, he's using the language of circumcision 
which is not physical. And that's spiritual circumcision that physical circumcision was pointing to. But that being made incomplete in him, verse 10, and that spiritual circumcision happens where? Verse 11, in him. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And to describe that father in verse 12, he is using the language of baptism. But what he went through, we went through in and with him through baptism. His baptism, talking about his death and resurrection, and our baptism, what that signified, is really going through that spiritual death and resurrection with Christ. In whom? In Christ. So, when you put these things together, that in your transgression equals the uncircumcision of your flesh, equals your past life, your sinful life, and the dead life, if I could put it that way. But you have been made complete equals circumcision, spiritual circumcision, putting away that sinful life, sin, dealing with sin, by the circumcision of Christ. A equals the removal of the body of the flesh, equals having been buried with him in baptism, now God made us alive together with Christ. So, the circumcision, the covenant sign of the Old Testament, pointed to the circumcision of the heart that will one day be fully realized by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is now in the New Testament is symbolized to us in our baptism with Christ. That's what he is arguing. What is interesting is in Paul's spirit-inspired mind, what is he trying to do? He's trying to show to the Christians at Colossae, saying, don't look to anything else because you have made, been made complete in Christ already. But in his mind, that being made incomplete in Christ, basically salvation. In his mind, the circumcision and baptism work together to make the same point, pointing to the same reality of salvation that we find in Christ. That's what is happening here. So, Obama Robertson says this, the circumcision of the Christian here is not to be understood as following his baptism. Instead, the two actions are to be regarded as simultaneous. The rite of cleansing found in the Old Covenant finds its fulfillment in the rite of cleansing ordered in the New. The basic meaning of the passage that we have just read is this then. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were circumcised. And he's not talking about physical circumcision. Net result of Paul's statement is to bind together in closest possible fashion the two rites of circumcision and baptism. 
in the fullest possible sense, baptism under the new covenant accomplishes all that was represented in circumcision under the old. By being baptized, the Christian believer has experienced the equivalent of the cleansing rite of circumcision. Calvin says the same thing then. Based upon this continuity that we find in this text, can we say this? Let me say this. With the absence of a contrary command in the Bible, that is, don't do it, the pattern of God's covenant dealings with His people must continue. That is, granting the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism, to the infants of believers first, so that it may draw their entire life's attention and focus to the cross, and us, the church, by covenanting together with our children, obligate ourselves to raise them in the fear and instruction of the Lord together. We should continue granting the signs, not to the adults, but to our infants. We find that reasoning in seeing that happening in the Old Testament, especially in circumcision. Uh, absence of contrary command works for us, but the absence of that same command works against us. So at the end of the day, Baptist Church and Presbyterian Church, they have to basically make that decision. How do you interpret the old and new together, whether you think it is okay based upon that continuation principle without contrary command, that's our position. Uh, but the Baptist position would be simple as they cannot understand anything. So how can we grant the sign to them before they could profess their faith? But as I've been trying to say, that alone shows us the inversion of what the sacraments are. So that's where we are. I have a million things to say. And I am sure you have a million questions in your mind. Um, but the implications of it, how it affects our Bible reading, the role of tradition, all of that I probably will talk about. So far, if you have noticed, I have intentionally didn't use the language of sign and seal. I left out the seal point. To talk about that is too, that's just too much. But I'll be content if you have gained an insight from the scriptures that the sign is really about God and God's salvation and His promises. First. That's the purpose of sign. God first. Recognizing that. If you, if you could even come to that point, I'll be very much satisfied. And you are sitting in a OPC, OP Church. Um, 
So that comes with a package. This tradition, we baptize infants. And I don't think any of us who are convinced of this would say this is a sin or sinful thing. No, rather we should. We should incorporate our children into the covenant community by placing the covenant marker just like the Old Testament covenant community. Whether you agree with that or not is up to you. But that's why the Presbyterians do that, is the reason to see that continuity and rest you could read from here. And I'll end with this phrase. I've been reading John Calvin and Martin Luther, two prominent reformers of the Reformation. Striking what they say. And I probably bring that to you as well. What they said about infant baptism. They said plenty. Even Zwingli was for infant baptism. So during the Reformation time, only people who are arguing for that Baptist view are the Anabaptists. Because they said infant baptism is invalid. That, that, is, that is not significant. You have to be rebaptized. So Anna means again in, in Greek, Anna. So Anabaptists, and it was punishable by death. So many Anabaptists were burned at the stake by the Reformation side. And our Baptistic friends, they traced their origin uh, to them. But anyhow, I will just end today's uh, discussion with a very helpful um, phrase that I picked up from Calvin. It is, I think, best to see infant baptism, to see our children who are baptized as infants as heirs of covenant, not heirs of salvation, heirs of the covenant, and all that implies. And really, the question is whether you are going to accept covenant theology as a whole to direct your life and faith. If you resent against that covenant theology, this is a package deal, really. And your option is really limited. When you have a baby, you have two options, either to baptize or not baptize. Um, but the bigger question and bigger context, whether you, whether you are going to see the Christian life through the lens of covenant theology or not. If you accept that, Granting that covenant sign to our children and they will become the heirs of the covenant doesn't mean it is saved, they are saved right away. But all that implies if you are there for that, then you will be more than glad to accept infant baptism. And I happen to be that. You lose more by going through that route. We gain more by going through the covenant patterns of God's dealing with His own people. 
May God accomplish what He has promised in Christ for you and for your children unto a thousand generations. His covenant faithfulness is our prayer together. Let's pray.